Well, good morning again. My name is John Stork. I am the interim pastor here at Res Prez for another couple of weeks. And we are uh, beginning a brief uh, three-week sermon series this morning uh, entitled Eating with God. Uh, we are going to look at three passages in uh, the Apostle John's Gospel uh, in which a meal is served and the context of which Jesus uses as an opportunity to express something about his gospel, his good news, the purpose of his life and his death and resurrection. So this morning we come here to this passage, John 2, that was just read. So as we do so, uh, will you pray with me one more time and ask for God's presence with us now? Heavenly Father, we, we do ask now that as we come to this, your word, that you would meet with us however we have entered into this room. Whether we come with great joy and enthusiasm or whether we come with heavy, weighty hearts um, or anywhere in between. Father, however we have found ourselves, whatever our place as our faith wherever that stands this morning whether we have come in here with great faith where we uh, could could literally um, it feels as if we could reach out and touch you or whether you feel a million miles away however we find ourselves here this morning would you convince us that it is not an accident that we find ourselves sitting here this morning help us to believe that you do intend to speak to us and do that now we pray by the power of your holy spirit for jesus's sake amen well i uh i recently came across a a very depressing poll about christians that was released last year that revealed a a considerable disconnect between how so-called Christians view themselves, often in a more positive light, characterized by positive qualities, and how non-Christians view those Christians, us Christians, often, as you might not be surprised, in less than a positive light. However, the one thing that really got my attention, the one thing that I found most interesting and actually sad, is that of all the specific characteristics that were listed to describe Christians, joy was nowhere to be found. Not even the Christians themselves answering this survey listed joy even in their top 10 characteristics describing themselves and describing Christianity. And yet, between the Old and the New Testaments, God's people are called and even commanded, instructed, to rejoice nearly a hundred times. It's one of the most often cited imperatives in all of Scripture. When Paul, the Apostle Paul, recounts the types of qualities and characteristics of those whose lives have been transformed by the very Spirit of Jesus Christ, the second thing that he thinks of, the second thing that he lists, is joy. In other words, joy was intended to be a prevalent posture towards life among those who claim to follow Jesus. 
And yet, the sad reality is that it is actually a rarity. When the average person is asked to describe the distinctions and impressions of Christianity in general, and Christians in particular, whether it be a Christian or not, it's a rarity that one of the immediate and initial responses would be joy. In the passage before us in John 2, the gospel writer John actually addresses this discrepancy and reinforces God's actual intended design for those he made in his own image. John begins by saying, on the third day, on the third day. Now this can't be coincidental for a gospel writer to start his narrative by saying, on the third day. For, we know elsewhere, the gospel writers make it very clear that it is on the third day that Jesus actually rises from the dead. New creation begins on the third day. This perhaps is a subtle note by John, but it's not unimportant. And then John tells us that, setting the scene, that Jesus and his mother Mary and his disciples have all been invited to a wedding in this small town of Cana, which is about four miles outside of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And in that day, a wedding celebration like this would have been the social event of the year. All of one's friends and family members from the surrounding area, even all of one's neighbors, the entire community, would have been invited to come to what had been a multi-day celebration, often lasting a week or more. These people knew how to party. And because of that, the bridegroom and his family had a great obligation. You're inviting this many people. He and they would have had a responsibility to provide a festival, a feast for his guests. But immediately in verse 3, John introduces us to a serious and potentially devastating situation. The wine runs out. The wine runs out. Now in the Jewish world, Wine would have been the primary staple of a celebration like this because wine was associated with joy and with celebration. In that day, to have a wedding and not have wine to serve would have been far more inconceivable than for you and I to throw a birthday party for our kids and not have a birthday cake. It would have been absolutely unthinkable to not have wine for your guests at a wedding celebration. And so in a culture of shame and honor, this is no simple social faux pas. But this would have been egregious. It would have been such a travesty and such a social offense, in fact, that to fail to provide your guests with significant food and wine at a party like this was actually legal grounds for a formal lawsuit. You could be sued for asking me to come to your wedding <laughs> and not 
God serve me wine. This family, and specifically this bridegroom, are facing enormous public disgrace and outrage. And Jesus' mom, Mary, has noticed and simply says to Jesus in verse 3, they have no wine. Now, immediately we, we wonder why Mary is the one addressing the situation, right? Perhaps she was close to the host family and had some kind of responsibility and, and maybe some role to play. The text is just not explicit. But furthermore, why was Mary coming to Jesus? By communicating this information to Jesus, Mary was effectively putting Jesus in the place of the bridegroom who is the one who bore the responsibility here to take care of his guests. And that's when Jesus responds with a seemingly cold and cryptic response in verse 4. When he says, Woman, he's talking to his mom, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My time is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. Now, although that sounds a bit cold and harsh in our ears to say to your mother, it's actually not as harsh in the original language. There are only two times in all of John's gospel where we hear Jesus directly addressing his mother. It's here and when he's on the cross. When he's on the cross and he's dying and he's thinking about his mom, he takes care of her and he looks to John, his friend, says, John, behold your mother. And then he says, woman, behold your son. He's taking care of his mother. And so the word itself, while not being especially warm and intimate, certainly, is not disrespectful towards his mom. Rather, Jesus here is establishing and putting boundaries on his unique Calling from his heavenly parent, his heavenly father. Elsewhere, when Jesus speaks of his time, his hour, he means the time of his death, the time of his, the whole time, that his death, his resurrection, his ascension. That is the time of his cosmic redemptive work to which his heavenly father had called him and sent him to do. And so what Jesus is communicating here is that he will not be pressured or compelled to do anything that's not according to the will of his father. Even from his own mother, whom he dearly loved and cared for. Now Jesus was ultimately intent on following and completing the will and the plans of his heavenly father. And he would not be influenced or conjoled by anyone else. And so his response is not, I'm not going to do anything about this. Rather, it's more like that which I do will be in accordance with my Father's will as I serve His purposes in His timing and no one else's. And Mary herself, to her credit, is not put off <laughs> by this response. But in verse 5, she tells the servants on the side, looking to the servants, do whatever He tells you to do. <laughs> Now, we could end the sermon right there. 
Because that's as good as message as any. When Jesus says to do something, it's probably best to follow his guidance. But at this point, John knows that there happen to be six purification jars at this party. These are 20 to 30 gallons that were of, of jars that were there to assist people in ensuring that they are ceremonial, ceremonially clean before they ate, after they ate, if they touched something unclean. These jars, they were purification jars. And so Jesus sees them and instructs these servants to fill the jars with water, and they do. And in fact, John even adds that they filled them to the brim. And when they finish filling them to the brim, this would have taken some time. There's no garden hose around. There's no faucet. There's a well out back. When they finish, he tells them to take some to the head waiter. Now, the head waiter would have been the MC, the host, or the maitre d'. He was hired. He was paid by the bridegroom with the responsibility to keep the party going and ensure that the guests were having a good time, enjoying themselves on behalf of the bridegroom. Now, can you imagine being one of these servants? You've seen what's happened. The wine has run out. And then this Jesus of Nazareth guy comes along and tells you to fill them up with water and then go and take some of that to the headmaster. I don't know that I would have had the faith like one of these servants. Surely they're looking at each other like, I surely hope Ms. Mary knows what she's talking about by telling me to follow Jesus here. And that's when everything changes. Because when the head waiter tastes what they bring him, it was now wine, he was astonished. Not because a miracle had just taken place, because he didn't know a miracle had just taken place. He's astonished at the quality of the wine. And furthermore, he's astonished at the timing of the service of this particularly amazing tasting wine. And so he has to acknowledge his astonishment, and he calls the bridegroom in. And in verse 10, he says, look, everybody knows how this works. You serve the good stuff first. And then when everybody has drunk freely, then you bring out the cheap stuff. You have kept the good stuff until now. <laughs> in other words... This must have been some of the finest Cabernet Sauvignon, some of the finest sherry. I don't know what kind of grapes these are. It must have been the finest that any palate of any human being had ever tasted. My wife, Jen, and I love to travel, and though we would never consider ourselves to be wine connoisseurs, we love visiting wineries. And we love doing the, the whole wine tastings. And we always, one of the things we like to do is kind of sit there and listen to other people as they're doing the wine tastings. <laughs> and you just wonder, is it really possible? Can your palate really be that sensitive? <laughs> Until I was once having a dinner with a former, an old boss. This is pre-ministry. He had taken me and another coworker out to dinner for one night at a very fine restaurant. 
First thing he asked for was the wine menu. And after he perused the wine menu, the server came over and he ordered a bottle of wine. The server brings the bottle of wine, uncorks it, pours him a little taste. He swirls it, smells it, tastes it, and then there's a, list, a look of disgust on his face. And he turns to the server and he says, this cannot be the year of the wine that you have listed in your menu. Please bring me the menu back. The server comes back with the menu and sure enough, it's off by one year. <laughs> Had I not been there, I would never believe this could happen. <laughs> he knew what he was ordering. And it wasn't the same thing. It became this big to-do. The manager had to come out and profusely apologize. Apparently what had happened, they had gone, they had changed out all the menus except for one menu had not been changed. <laughs> he caught it. My boss ended up getting a very fine bottle of wine on the house. I don't know, if maybe he was just bluffing. <laughs> My boss was able to tell. Because he had a sophisticated enough palate. And not a single drop yet of wine had touched his palate. This is not the case in this passage. In this day, you started with the good stuff first. You wanted to impress your guests. And after people had some to drink and their palates are dulled after a drink or two, they likely would not notice the difference. And so that's when you bring out the cheap stuff. That's the economically savvy and ingenious way to throw a party. But here the head waiter, waiter is incredulous because this bridegroom apparently did things differently. This bridegroom had apparently saved the best for last. My friends, this is exactly how it works in Jesus's in Jesus' economy, when Jesus throws a party, Jesus saves the best for last. I wonder this morning, perhaps you are here, and maybe not yet a follower of Jesus. Perhaps you are here and you've been a follower for a long time. But does this picture of Jesus fit your perception of who he is? Or would you have pictured Jesus in this situation, a terrible situation, there's no more wine. Maybe he gets up and preaches a sermon on being thankful for what you've had. <laughs> this Jesus, when the wine runs out, when the party was on the verge of ending in utter failure and disappointment, intervenes to keep it going. Too often Christianity is seen as something that is here simply to kill your fun and kill your enjoyment of life. But that idea did not come from historical Christianity. And it didn't come from the God of the Bible. That idea actually came from Greek philosophy that creeped into historical Christianity that pits this physical world against the spiritual world. It did not come from the God of the Bible who in Genesis 1 and 2 create this creation 
good. It was God who designed it so that when the grapes are sitting on the vine, even before they're plucked and picked, they're already starting to ferment because they're interacting with other agents in God's good creation. That's how he designed it. It's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 16, God, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's why the psalmist can bid us in Psalm 34, as we read earlier, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just theoretically know it, but experience it, know it. It's why he gives rightful recognition to God for all of God's good gifts in, in, in Psalm 104. And there specifically says, you, God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. No, this God, this Jesus is no killjoy. And in fact, in John 10, directly, Jesus directly contests and refutes that idea and says, I have come, I have come that you might have you might have it to the full, to the brim, abundantly. John 15, later, he says, these things I speak to you, that my joy might be in you, and that your joy might be full. Though far from being a cosmic killjoy, Jesus invites us into a life of joy. Far from killing this party and celebration, Jesus encouraged it to continue and actually does something to ensure that it does. Now, of course, we pause and we say, this is not an invitation to drunkenness. <laughs> of course not. The fact that we might be afraid of that being communicated actually reveals more about us than it does about Jesus. Now, Jesus himself was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Make no doubt about it. Jesus never overate. Jesus never got drunk. But you don't get a reputation of being a drunkard and a glutton living a joyless, cheerless, pietistic life and not hanging out with those who know how to have a good time. Now, to be sure, the head waiter is not the only one who must be incredulous and astonished at this point. Just moments earlier, the bridegroom is facing serious disgrace. But now, the bridegroom will be remembered for this party, but not for being a shamefully poor host but for being a generous, ingenious host. He will end up getting the credit for this, even though he had absolutely nothing to do with it, except for mistakenly providing the occasion for Jesus to demonstrate his generous sovereignty and grace and kindness. And that, my friends, is the crux of the gospel right there. As one theologian puts it, the only thing that we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. <laughs> That's our contribution. That's the gospel. We do nothing but contribute to the brokenness of this world and the ways that we treat others in our thoughts, our words, and deeds. Not to mention how we dismiss and disregard our God and our creator 
And yet, when we come to him in faith, we only receive his generosity. We end up getting credit for the work our greater bridegroom has done on our behalf. On the cross, through his resurrection, all of our failures, our sin, our misdeeds, all are paid for. They're no longer held against us, and instead we receive and inherit the gift of the joy and the life of the new creation through his resurrection. Waiter actually hints at this, though he doesn't even know it, <laughs> when he said, you saved the best for last. Listen to what the gospel writer John tells at the end of his gospel in John 20. It says there, Jesus did many other signs like this one in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have that life in his name. John wants his readers to hear these particular signs that he records and he recounts so that they, so that we might believe that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Christ, the Son of God, that is the Messiah that had been promised and long foretold of by the private prophets previously. Hundreds of years ago, prior to this event, God's prophets promised this day is coming, a messianic age. And they say, you will know this time is coming when you see new creation happening, a time marked out by, among other things, the overflowing of wine. Multiple times. Isaiah 25, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of aged wine well refined. Joel 2, your wine in that day, your wine vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Amos 9, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, all the hills shall flow with it. Jeremiah 31, they, my people, shall come in that day and sing. They will be radiant over the goodness of their Lord over the grain, over the wine, over the oil, and they shall languish no more. The young women shall rejoice and dance. The young men shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will give them gladness for sorrow. To me, it sounds like the prophets were saying that when the day comes for God to rewrite the script, to initiate redemption, to begin making all things new, to send his Messiah to do the work he intends to throw a party. John opens his gospel in chapter one, writing that we have seen his glory, Jesus' glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here in verse 11, John ends this narrative by saying, this is the first of Jesus' signs through which he manifested this glory. all the ways that Jesus could have first manifested, displayed his glory. His first, his introduction was not by walking on water. It wasn't calming a storm. It wasn't healing someone. It wasn't raising someone from the dead. It was changing water into wine. It was causing wine to flow. It was throwing a redemptive party. 
as I close, just to clarify here, this is not, this is not a denial of the remaining brokenness in this life. The joy that Jesus here offers and intends for his followers to experience and to display as his followers is not some kind of fluffy, disconnected emotionalism. It's not what we're talking about. Rather, it is an underlying heart posture that is able to both genuinely hold on to hope in difficult and sorrowful times, but also able to celebrate over things that are genuinely life-giving gifts that our good creator has intended for us to appreciate and respond with a festive heart too when we receive them. The healthy birth of a child, the reunion and reconnecting of family members or friends who have been long separated by time and space. The ringing of a bell on the floor of a cancer ward. A wedding. All reasons for joy because after all, another greater wedding is actually the ultimate hope of those who have faith in Jesus, the bridegroom. We are actually spiritually betrothed, the Bible says, to the greater bridegroom, Jesus himself, the one who the Bible says lays down his life for his bride, the one who currently is preparing a place for his bride, the one who will one day return and will celebrate, according to Revelation, the greatest celebration ever celebrated, the marriage feast of the Lamb, it's called. And so outside of faith in Jesus Christ, that impulse to find things in this life, to give us momentary and fleeting experiences of joy is now redirected. Those moments that we once lived for as an escape or a respite from the hardship and pain of this life, the way we abuse the good gifts now is transformed. Now the good gifts become genuine and legitimate reasons to celebrate in and of themselves. Because they're pointing to something greater. As signposts that anticipate the greater celebration we will one day experience at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's which we used to consider the main course. Perhaps even the dessert. Ultimately, right now, is merely the appetizer. And so for the one here who is not yet a follower of Jesus, you are invited you are invited to a banquet, to a feast, to a party, to come and feast on something that is lasting, something that will satisfy and not disappoint and simply leave you more hungry than you were before. For you, it's just possible, if you're this morning and not yet a follower of Jesus, it's just possible that to this point you have turned down that invitation because you, not because you've actually rejected the Jesus of the Bible, but rather you've rejected a poor caricature of the Jesus of the Bible. For the believer here, you're invited to further leave behind attitudes of complaint and cynicism and to embrace a life and a heart of gratitude and of joy and to continue to follow Jesus into obedience in places where you're struggling now 
that you've not left yet left behind, but Jesus is bidding you to leave behind. Why? Because Jesus promises, and he will make good on the promise, that to follow him leads to life to the brim. Give the gift, Res Pres, of joyful community to your neighbors here in Madison. May it be one day said that those Res Pres people, though I may not agree with all that they believe, they have a contagious zeal and joy for life that is good for our city. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We ask that you would either forgive us or forgive us and reorient our perception of who you are. Jesus, may we believe that you truly are the one who celebrates, the one who brings joy, the one who offers abundant life filled to the brim. Help us perhaps to see that for the first time this morning. Or perhaps help us to see that for the thousandth, but in a renewed way, we pray for your sake, Jesus. Amen.